Well, good morning, Grace. Welcome again to our live stream. Um, it's still weird on week two. I don't know about you, but it's weird. I, I cannot get used to this. And so I long for the day when we will be back together again. Until then, let's just do what we normally do. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. We've come to the end of our series in 1 Kings. And I don't know about you, but this series has been so good for my heart. It's been good for me to be in this book. The Holy Spirit has done a deep work in my heart. He has exposed more of the depth of my sin. He has taken the light of the gospel and shown me that there still are unevangelized dark continents in my heart that still need the gospel. I have been exposed. I've had to face my sin and it's been ugly. What resides deep down in my heart? And it's been embarrassing because it ain't fun when the Holy Spirit exposes you, that's for sure. But it brings the healing that I desperately crave. And so it's a good thing. It's been painful. It's embarrassing to see what's deep down in my own heart. But it's been good because I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus when he shows me what's up with my heart. And so the Spirit of God has been leading me by the hand through the book of 1 Kings to more repentance, and I hope that's been true of you as well. But best of all, the Holy Spirit has shown me Jesus. He's shown me the glories of the cross. He has put the love of God on display for me, and he has let me bask in it. And I am grateful for that. I am overwhelmed at his kindness to me, to a sinner like me. Seriously, our time in 1 Kings has been so good for my heart. I've seen Jesus on every page, and the gospel has been like glitter for me in this book. It's just gotten everywhere, and I love it. And I've been reminded week after week that the gospel is good news of rest, It's the good news of restful assurance that Jesus paid it all. That it is finished. So get this, Grace. We don't have to try hard anymore to justify ourselves. We don't have to try by our own doing or our own strength, our own striving or our own works to earn God's favor because he has freely, generously given that to us in Christ. He has declared us righteous. Think about it. People like us, he has declared righteous. Imagine that. And so we have nothing to prove anymore. We don't have to try to impress God anymore because we are accepted in the beloved, in his son. And we don't have to try and impress others. Isn't that great? Jesus has set every single one of us free 
from people-pleasing. So you don't have to live in the fear of man. The pressure is off. You don't have to spend your energy and spend your days trying to get people to like you. You don't have to spend your time trying to curry favor with others because you are loved and accepted in Christ and the pressure is off. I mean, if Jesus loves you and accepts you, who cares what anybody else thinks, right? So rest, friends. Receive his love and receive his forgiveness. I mean, for crying out loud, y'all, we are forgiven. Let that sink in and then go enjoy your forgiveness today. You are free. No more chains. You're free. You don't have to live as a slave of anybody anymore. You're free. So enjoy it. Just soak it all up and just rest. And so, yes, First Kings has been really good for me. Can you tell? And today, we end our series. We say goodbye to a friend. I say goodbye to a good friend. But First Kings will not end on a triumphant note because the very last verse tells us that the nation of Israel is still in love with the false god Baal. Remember Baal? We've looked at him through our series in 1 Kings. Baal was the Canaanite god of thunder and power and rain. And the Israelites, as we get to the end of 1 Kings, are still smitten with this Canaanite god. And so no one rides off into the sunset here at the end of 1 Kings. The boy does not get the proverbial girl. There is no happily ever after at the close of this book. In fact, it ends with a few short snippets about two kings, one from Judah and one from Israel. One compromises and one apostatizes. So there's no feel-good Hollywood ending here. There's no triumphalism. And so as we close our series in 1 Kings today, and turn to 1 Kings 22 in your Bibles, if you haven't yet, we're going to get another reminder from the Holy Spirit because he loves us so much. And so he's going to give us a reminder. And his reminder to us today is this, guard your heart. What does this mean? It means that we need to guard and to protect the most important part of who we are. Why? Because your heart is who you are in your essence. It's who you are at your core. It's who you are deep down. It's not just a place of warm, fuzzy feelings. Your heart is the most important thing about you. Everything you think, everything that you say, everything that you do, and all the motives that are driving everything that you think, say, and do, it comes from and flows out from your heart. And so as we look at these two kings today, we'll be reminded that we have to be vigilant to guard our hearts. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. 
It's, it's not enough for us to say that sin is bad. We all know that. It's not enough to realize that sin will leave us empty, that the heart idols that we manufacture will leave us empty. That's not enough to say that, to believe that, to recognize that. That will not change us. We will only change as we see Jesus. You can say that sin is stupid and still end up totally wrecking your life. So you have to come back to real-time delight in Jesus. Real-time drinking in his favor. Real-time drinking in his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. Because everything flows out from what's deep down in your heart. So 1 Kings 22 We'll close out this series first by looking at King Jehoshaphat. He's the king that we've seen over the past few weeks, the king of Judah who went to war with King Ahab, the king of Israel, against the Syrians that we saw several weeks ago. Let's see what exciting news about King Jehoshaphat awaits us. So 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom, A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. Now, doesn't that just warm your heart? It probably doesn't. Unless, of course, you're one of those rubberneckers kind of people who like to slow down and gawk at car wrecks on the freeway. Maybe you want to slow down and gawk at this fleet of wrecked ships owned by Jehoshaphat. But other than that, you don't necessarily get the warm fuzzies when you read these verses, do you? But it might be a passage that may cause you to slow down and realize that you could wreck your life. And no one wants that, right? Who wants their life to look like a car accident on the side of the freeway so that people stop and gawk at us? I don't want that, and I assume that you don't want that either. So even though it might seem boring on the surface, the ending of 1 Kings just might save your life, or your families, or this church. And so let's be open 
to what God has to say to us today from his word. These verses remind us of something that we saw earlier in 1 Kings that I shared with you. Recall what Jacob Smith said. He said, we are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline and most of us are already on day two. For some of us today, watching from our couches or wherever, for some of us, we're three days away from becoming a tabloid headline and some of us are already on day two. That quarantine life has been really getting to us, right? So let me say to you today, don't let your heart drift. Guard your heart. Protect it. It's the most important thing about you. You're just one click away. I'm one click away. One text away. One kiss away. One look away. And so look to Jesus and keep your eyes on him and rehearse the gospel over and over again and preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to your heart, to the most important part about you. That is how you guard your heart. You see the beauty of Jesus as he lives and dies for you. Don't lose your awe And so during this time of quarantine, make it your daily prayer often. God, don't let me lose my awe. Don't let me lose my awe and wonder of you, Jesus. And then listen to God today. Open your heart to him. He's smarter than you. And he loves you more than you even know. And he cares about you more than you even do. And that's why he chose to end 1 Kings this way, to remind you that you could end up like King Jehoshaphat if you don't guard your heart. He loves you so much that he decided to end 1 Kings this way, to remind you and to recapture your heart. And so we have this note here on King Jehoshaphat the king of Judah. He's the son of Asa, who we last saw all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 15, a long time ago. And we haven't heard much from the southern kingdom of Judah for quite some time now. We've been in Israel, and our focus has been on the northern kingdom of Israel. But now, we shift back briefly to the southern kingdom of Judah. And we don't get much info on Jehoshaphat here. He gets more press coverage in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 through 20. He gets four chapters there. But here, all we get on King Jehoshaphat is 10 verses. But that's enough. Because you can learn a lot about people. And you can learn a lot about God from just 10 verses. And these 10 verses are here for a reason. And what we read about King Jehoshaphat is a refreshing break from the Baal-loving, Baal-praising people we've spent the last few chapters of 1 Kings with. Jehoshaphat, as verse 43 tells us, walked in the ways of his father Asa. 
If you recall from 1 Kings 15, when Asa became king, he got rid of all the male cult prostitutes in the land. And he also kicked out his mother, Queen Maacah, and removed her from being the queen mother because she made an Asherah pole to worship it. And so Asa, King Asa, for the most part, was one of the good kings. And here in 1 Kings 22, we get one of the classic Old Testament like father, like son moments. King Jehoshaphat was like his father, his dad, King Asa. He loved the Lord. He loved Yahweh. King Jehoshaphat does not worship Baal, the Canaanite god that the northern kingdom of Israel was so infatuated with. Jehoshaphat continues the revival that his dad ushered in. But we do get one comment about Jehoshaphat in verse 43. It says, Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Remember, remember Solomon had uh, built the temple of the Lord. We saw this way back in 1 Kings. Solomon built the temple of the Lord and worship was to be centralized there. But Jehoshaphat, here we read, allowed people to worship Yahweh, to worship the Lord on the old high places, which were just like these little elevated stages, if you will. He allowed people to worship Yahweh on the old high places, perhaps for convenience sake, perhaps. But please understand, these people, when they worshiped the Lord on these high places, they were still praising and worshiping Yahweh. They were not, just not doing it in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple. Was it idolatry to worship on the high place? Was it Baal worship? No, they were still worshiping the Lord. But it was a compromise. Their praise and worship of Yahweh was supposed to take place at Solomon's temple, not on some lone high place 50 miles outside of Jerusalem. Listen, they were doing live streams before live streams were cool. That's what they're doing at the high places. But the author of 1 Kings does tell us in verse 46 something noteworthy about Jehoshaphat. He exterminated all of the male cult prostitutes who had remained in the land. So this is commendable. And then we get a little info on a treasure hunting expedition in verses 47 through 50. It's nothing too exciting here. But if this were a movie, a movie about King Jehoshaphat, you would hear some ominous music at this point because Jehoshaphat will enter into an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel. Israel, son of Ahab, a resident Baal worshiper. And we know this was a bad move because God tells us in 2 Chronicles 20 that this was a bad move that Jehoshaphat entered into a peace treaty with King Ahaziah. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 35 through 37 says this, after this Jehoshaphat king of Judah joined with Ahaziah king of Israel who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Mereshah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. 
So Jehoshaphat joins forces with Ahab's son, Ahaziah, and they start a boat company. Boats by Japhat and Ziah. But this does not please the Lord. Yahweh sends a prophet who tells Jehoshaphat that the Lord is going to destroy said boat company. And so the ships crash and everyone floating by all slow down and gawk at the wreckage. Ancient Near Eastern rubberneckers. But why? Why did this alliance displease the Lord? Because Jehoshaphat and the nation of Judah were joining forces with Baal-worshipping Israel. Joining forces with King Ahab, who we've seen through 1 Kings, and joining forces with his son Ahaziah. They were joining forces with a group of people, God's people, who don't worship Yahweh, who don't worship the Lord. Instead, they worship the god Baal. And this treaty, this alliance, this joining together did not please the Lord. And so now, in our passage today, Ahaziah will try once again to join forces with Jehoshaphat in verse 49. But after the warships had crashed earlier, Jehoshaphat is not interested in a second run at making this boat company work. He's learned his lesson the first time. No more alliances with Israel and their Baal-worshipping kings. But as verse 44 tells us, Jehoshaphat had made peace with Ahab and sons, and it will result further down the line in the covenant line almost being completely wiped out. Now let me explain. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, married King Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Big deal, right? Yeah, it's a big deal because later in 2 Kings chapter 11, Athaliah will kill every member of the royal family. She becomes a serial killer. And she kills everyone in the entire royal family, the royal line, except for one little boy who somebody hides away from her. So we'll actually be one little kid away from Jesus never coming. One coronavirus away from game over. All because Jehoshaphat made an alliance with those Baal-worshipping kings, Ahab and his son Ahaziah. Somebody should have pulled King Jehoshaphat aside and said, Hey, buddy, have you read the book of Proverbs lately? If not, let me remind you of one verse. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Somebody should have told King Jehoshaphat, Guard your heart. That's the takeaway from this ending in 1 Kings. God is telling us today, hey y'all, don't cram your heart full of junk. Don't stuff yourself with what does not satisfy. Fill it instead with my love. Fill it with my promises. Drink deeply of the gospel and swallow it whole with repeated gulps. You see, God loves us so much 
that he comes to us in his word to give us warnings about not letting our hearts drift, about not stuffing our hearts with crud. Jesus loves us so much, get this, that he kindly warns us to guard our hearts. This is loving correction from Jesus. It's loving correction. Jesus specializes in that. He's trying to keep us from making a total mess of our lives, which is easier to do than you may realize. As Ray Ortland says, if we are distracted from real-time connection with the mercies of God so that our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet wandering, we are only one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. We do not have to give ourselves to raw evil to end up there. We only have to unguard our hearts. We only have to stop being vigilant. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. But if we are receiving by faith the outpouring of Christ's love in constant supply from his throne of grace, we cannot lose our way. Listen, God does not want us to lose our way. And that's why this book ends the way that it does. Some people approach 1 Kings 22 and its ending and they think that it's all kind of haphazardly thrown together. And on the surface, it does look like that. I mean, you might feel that way when you first read it. In 1 Kings 22, you have a few Wikipedia entries about two kings and you have the mention of some high places and cult prostitutes and some shipwrecks. And so it seems kind of thrown together. But what does this chapter teach us about Jesus? And how does this chapter expose our hearts? Listen, if you ever stumble on a passage and it makes you scratch your head and you wonder what to do with it because it doesn't give you the warm fuzzies, you can't go wrong by asking this question. What does this passage teach me about Jesus? And you can't go wrong by asking this question. What does this passage teach me about my own heart? And so here's what 1 Kings 22 is telling us about the Trinitarian God that we love and serve. It's this, God cares about us. Now you may not get that at first glance when you read the ending of this chapter, but that's what we see here, is that Jesus really cares about us. He doesn't want us to make a shipwreck of our lives. God knows that our hearts are so easily lured away from him. Our hearts drift from God in little moments, little by little, and we can make a shipwreck of our lives if we're not vigilant. Listen, we don't just wake up one day and find ourselves having drifted far away from the Lord. It doesn't happen in the night when we're asleep. It happens Little by little, day after day, in the 10,000 mundane, very ordinary moments in life. That's when we let our guard down and when things like a root of bitterness creeps in 
We just can't seem to get rid of it because we feed it. Or when lust or worry or anxiety take over, they take over in those little moments when we're not being vigilant to guard and to protect our hearts. And God loves each and every one of us enough to put reminders of this truth in his word. And that's why he gives us 1 Kings 22. That's why it ends this way, to remind me, this knucklehead, and to remind you to guard your heart. To guard your heart is to be vigilant about caring for it, protecting the most important part about you. And King Ahaziah, king of Israel, the next king that we will look at, he obviously didn't do that. He didn't guard his heart. In fact, he loved to praise and worship the false god Baal, just like his dad, Ahab. Look at verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So there's not a whiff of compromise with King Ahaziah. You can't smell any kind of compromise on his breath because it's all flat out rebellion with this guy. Forget compromise. Ahaziah has jumped straight to willful disobedience and rebellion. He goes straight to apostasy. Forget compromise. He advances to go, he collects his $200, and then he goes straight to apostasy avenue. Like father, like son. Ahaziah is a Baal worshiper just like his parents, Ahab and Jezebel. And he too provoked the Lord to anger. That's what Ahaziah's false worship has done to Yahweh. The Hebrew word has the idea of he has pushed the Lord over the edge. He has driven the Lord up the wall with his false worship. And so this ending here in 1 Kings serves as a reminder to the original audience in exile. And it serves as a reminder to us that we should be praying not just for our own hearts, but also for the hearts of our children. Even praying for a godly heritage for our families. We want like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, generations that praise and worship Jesus, right? Ray and Janie Ortland give us some encouragement to pray not only for our kids, but to pray to the 10th generation. They say, we often pray, Lord bless our family to the 10th generation. One day in her Bible reading, Janie noticed that God excluded from his blessing the Ammonites and the Moabites to the 10th generation, Deuteronomy 23. She thought, How much more does God long to bless a people, a church, a family to the 10th generation? This thought has become a lasting theme in our life together. It gives us a new way to pray for our family. When we were married in 1971, we were just two people 
obviously. But now we have grandchildren with more on the way. At present trends, our family could grow to 52,488 people in 10 generations. That's a city about the size of Flagstaff, Arizona. And it's all our fault. So we cannot say we have no responsibility for this growing wedge of humanity even now on its way into human history. We pray for our family. We pray that to the 10th generation, God will clearly set our family apart to himself. We pray that our descendants will be solidly converted, that they will love the Lord, believe the Bible, and live with God-given integrity and courage. They're going to need it, we are sure. Why not pray for your family this way to the 10th generation? God longs to bless you for Jesus' sake. Everything that we're talking about today, grace, is for Jesus' sake. It's for his glory. Why do we guard our hearts? For his glory. Why do we pray for our families? For his glory. It's all about his glory. Everything in this church is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about getting our egos stroked. It's about Jesus and his glory. And so there's a reminder here in our passage today to pray for our kids and our grandkids all the way down to the 10th generation. And King Ahaziah serves as a reminder, too, that we need to guard our hearts. I know what you're thinking, maybe this is no way to end a preaching series No way to end 1 Kings, a preaching series, with these words. They served Baal and worshipped him and angered the Lord. But maybe it is a way to end a book and to end an expositional preaching series. Why end it on a sour note? Why didn't we just end it with Jehoshaphat and a little bit of compromise? Why end with Baal worship? Listen, Jesus is not trying to ruin the ending of this book. He's not trying to crush us with layer after layer of warning. He's not trying to ruin the party. He's trying to keep us from ruining our lives. He intends to help us, not crush us. His words here are practical help. These warnings here in 1 Kings 22 about compromise and apostasy are practical help from Jesus for sin-prone people like us who just stumble along through daily life. Yahweh's words here are a warning to the proud and we have every reason to receive them with a whole heart. So humbly accept his warning to you today, Christian. Ahab and company teach us that there are no one-night stands with other gods. Listen, Jesus will not sit by idly as we have one-night stands with other gods and idols. And so this warning to guard your heart here, these are loving fatherly warnings from Yahweh to walk in his commandments. Now, not perfectly, of course. We know that. We know here at this church that we are sinners. 
Only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus never, ever sinned. Only Jesus obeyed God's commands perfectly. We, we know that. We believe that here at Grace. But I think we all know the gist of what the Lord is saying here. We all know when we're walking with the Lord and when we're not. We know that. We know when our communion with him is non-existent or when it's fading. We know when our hearts get foggy and even bitter and hardened. We all know when our hearts get cold. And in those times, our union with Christ is secure. We have been declared righteous. Our union with Christ is not at stake in those moments. But our communion is lacking. The fellowship with God is lacking in those moments. So listen, if we're going to walk in God's ways, if we're going to keep our hearts from getting cold, We have to be in God's word. We have to be reading it and memorizing it and meditating on it and studying it and hearing it taught and preached here every week during a live stream until we can all get back together. We need to hear the law preached and be exposed as a needy sinner. In order for that to happen, you have to hear God's word. To be reassured of all the benefits that come to you in the gospel, you need to hear God's word. His word is one of the primary means of his grace. You need God's word to guard your heart. And if you're going to guard your heart, you need to be in this book. To guard your heart, you need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. You need to hear about Jesus Constantly, how he lived perfectly for you, died perfectly for you, how God raised him from the dead, and how he ascended to his Father's right hand. You need to hear over and over again how good he is. Listen to me, Christian. He's good. He's merciful. He's kind. He's loving. He is generous. Understand this, Grace. We can choose to not walk in God's ways, but we can't avoid the consequences when we do. Ahaziah, just like his dad, King Ahab, suffered consequences. And so we too can choose to walk according to our own wisdom, but one thing we can't do is evade the consequences. You can't and I can't escape the consequences. If we say something like this, oh, phooey, God's warnings, warnings have no place in a gospel-centered church. If we say that to God's word, we're in danger. No, we can't lose our salvation. We do not believe that here at Grace. We do not believe that you can lose your salvation. We do not believe that you can sin your way out of God's grace. We don't believe that at all. But we do believe that you can seriously mess up your life if you do not guard your heart. So yes, there is mercy and there is grace to help us endure the consequences of our sins and our decisions and our rebellions. But the consequences 
remain nevertheless. And so how do we guard our hearts? We have to gaze on Jesus. I love this. God made it so easy for us. Isn't that wonderful? Anyone can guard their heart. Little kids watching, you can guard your heart by remembering Jesus and how much he loves you. Anyone can guard their heart. God has made it so easy for us. It's like a a little soft, low pitch that we can all hit. Anyone can guard their heart. All you have to do is keep your eyes on Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And do that in real time. A real time tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We have to keep beholding his beauty. We have to read about him in his word. We have to celebrate his forgiveness through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have to hear his word preached every week. We have to think about him. We have to rehearse the gospel over and over again. We have to worship. And that's the answer. Ian Duguid said, the answer to my sinful self-centeredness is not more law. It is not telling me that I need to spend more time in Bible study or that I need to pursue longer quiet times or to endure more rigorous Christian disciplines. The answer to my self-centeredness is worship. Beholding the beauty of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what will transform us, transform our hearts. That's what will bring revival to our own hearts and revival to this church. It's beholding the beauty of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we all know we need to read the Bible because I just told you you need to read the Bible. We all know the spiritual disciplines are important, but what changes our hearts? Is it the law, hearing, being told what we're supposed to do, or is it the gospel, the good news of rest? The gospel is what changes and transforms our hearts. The gospel is what brings revival. It's as we rehearse and remember what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension that we are then transformed. Listen, we all know the stupidity of our sins, right? We all know that. We know it's disastrous to sin. We all know the empty promises of sin. But knowing that does not change our hearts, does it? That realization that we will ruin our life if we willingly accept and choose and want and chase after sin, that realization doesn't change us. It does not transform us. What does? It's only when we see Jesus. Beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus is what changes us. Beholding the beauty of God in the face of our Lord Jesus is what will keep us as a church from falling prey to the practical and pragmatic stuff that cause us to lose sight of Jesus. And that can happen to churches. It's so easy for a church to experience heart drift where the focus is on a myriad of things like money and budgets and how many people attend each week and how many baptisms we have. So many churches make that the focus and not worship. That's game over. 
the worst thing that can happen to us individually or collectively as a church family, the worst thing that can happen is what happened with the kings of Israel and Judah in this chapter. They lost their awe of God. They no longer delighted in the glory of the Lord. They no longer wanted to hear the good news of the gospel. That, wanted, that was supposed to be pushed down, pushed back a little. Let's focus on pragmatism. Let's build ships and go to uh, Tarshish to get gold. Put those things back and they lost their awe of God. They no longer enjoyed God. They no longer tasted and saw that the Lord is good. That is the worst thing that could happen to any of us. And that means then that the very best thing that could happen to us is to be alive again to the sweetness and the goodness of God. The very best thing that could happen to any one of us today, right now, is to be awakened again to the sweetness and the goodness of God to sinners like us. To be awakened again to His glory as our joy. To taste and see again that He he really is good. Awakened to His sweetness. Awaken to his goodness and his kindness. That's what we're shooting for here every single week at this church is to have people awakened to his goodness and his kindness. This is what we want to see every week here at Grace after hearing a sermon, either in this building or through some computer or some device. We want people to feel in their hearts to feel so loved so forgiven, so free that they leave here or shut down their computer saying yes to whatever God says. Leaving so free, so loved, so forgiven that they say yes, I will follow Jesus because he has been so good to me. That's what I hope hope happens after this live stream. In about 10 minutes or so, when you shut it down, I hope you think, yes, I want to follow Jesus because he's been so good to me. That's what we're shooting for here. Every single week, every single ministry, everything that we do, we want people to feel so loved and forgiven that they say, yes, I want to follow Jesus as a disciple. That's what we're praying for our kids as well. And so we end this series and we have to wait until we can gather together in person again. So while we wait, let's be praying. Jesus, don't let us lose our awe. Make us alive again to the sweetness and goodness of God. Awaken us again to your glory. Help us to behold your beauty. Help us to taste and see that you are good. And so let's pray now that we don't lose our awe and that God would bless our families to the 10th generation for his glory. Let's pray and then we'll sing and then you can turn off your phone or your computer and you can say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you because you've been so good to me. Let's pray. Jesus, don't let us lose 
our awe. Don't let us lose that sense of wonder that you love and forgive sinners. Make us alive again to the sweetness and goodness of God. Awaken us again to your glory. Help us to behold your beauty. Help us to taste and see again that you are good. And Jesus, please bless our families to the 10th generation. May our children and grandchildren all the way to the 10th generation, may they know and love you. May they be awestruck that you love and forgive sinners. May they taste and see that you are good. So set our families apart unto you, Lord. We pray that our descendants will be solidly converted, that they will love the Lord, that they will believe the Bible, and that they will live with God-given integrity and courage because they're going to need it, Lord. And so do it for our good our joy, and ultimately for your glory, Lord. In your name we pray with hope and expectation. Amen.